Our scripture reading this morning is taken from John chapter 14 and the <clears throat> first 14 verses of that chapter. The call to worship this morning really was a part of the scripture as well. Uh, we could have probably read all of chapter 21 and benefited from that, but um, I decided to just use the first few verses of chapter 21 of Revelation as a, a call to worship to kind of get some of the thoughts of our message um, in, your, in your minds as well at that time. But the uh, center of our uh, text this morning is verses 1, 2, and 3 of John chapter 14. Uh, but I'd like to read through the first 14 verses of that chapter to set the context as well. Let's give our attention to God's word. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me? Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. We're going to end our reading there, but I want to point out to you that the rest of the chapter goes on to describe the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14 is a very Trinitarian passage. Uh, we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in that chapter. But uh, for our scripture this morning and for our focus this morning, we're looking particularly at the first three verses and a little bit beyond that and a number of other scriptures as well. So let's 
give our attention to God as we ask his blessing on this time together. Lord God, as we gather together as your people this morning, and as we read your word, which is indeed the very word of God, we pray that you would give us understanding, give us application that is appropriate to our own situations, cause us to be blessed in our fellowship and in our meditation together this morning. Father, we pray that you would just continue to watch over us, guide us, direct us, bless us by your Holy Spirit, because we ask it in the name of Christ our Savior. Well, from the um, title of the sermon and from the scripture I've just read, uh, I think you can probably surmise that we're going to be talking about heaven this morning. Uh, for some reason, I don't know exactly all the reasons, recently I've had a renewed and expanded interest in that subject. Uh, some might suggest that my age is uh, suggesting that I better be interested in that and be prepared for that. Uh, certainly my interest is not because of the fear of death, but it is because of, of my desire to to have a better understanding of where, um, I don't know what your ideas about heaven are. Uh, a lot of people, you know, think of the cherubs uh, floating around in the clouds playing their harps and uh, really kind of a boring, I mean, if that's all you do. I uh, trust that we'll go beyond that this morning. But I want you then, foundationally, to be asking yourself, where am I going to spend eternity and what will it be like? Uh, <clears throat> scripture does inform us clearly that there are only two options that answer that question eternity in hell or eternity in heaven. And I trust that uh, those of you here this morning are are interested in being in the eternity that exists. Now, our subject this morning is not focusing on how can I know that I will go to heaven? How can I be sure that I will go to heaven? Uh, but I do want to just take note of the fact that Jesus answers that question when Thomas asks the question, Lord, I don't know where you're going. At. How can I know the way to get there? And Jesus was very clear and very plain. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father. And so we're not, we're not going to spend further time on that this morning. What I do want us to spend time on is what do we anticipate heaven to be like? What are some of the things that, that we can know about it? You know, there are a lot of people that quote that uh, verse that I don't have written down, so my quotation will not be 100% accurate, but I have not seen, ear hath not heard, and they usually stop there. But the verse goes on to say, but God has revealed. And there are a number of things that Scripture does reveal about heaven. And about it's tempting to do a lot of speculation as well, and I'm going to try and not do that this morning, but rather to try and focus on some of the things specifically that Scripture does say to us about heaven. There are a number of good sources with regard to that. Uh, Dr. Derek Thomas, uh, theologian and pastor, 
has written an excellent little book, Heaven on Earth. Uh, pretty short if you'd like to have something to look there. Uh, my former pastor and professor, uh, J.G. Voss, in his uh, Blue Banner Faith and Life, has a, an excellent article on the subject of, of heaven and events that are related to that. And there are a number of others as well. So um, you have an outline before you, and I'll try and follow pretty much uh, that outline without deviating too far from it. And uh, I think by looking at some of these questions and, and answers, we'll be able to uh, get some fuller understanding, I trust, on our eternal abode. Uh, the first question that I ask is, what are some of the terms that are used to describe our eternal home? And I've already been using the one heaven. That's probably the most common one. But we need to remember that heaven is used in at least three or four different ways throughout Scripture. Uh, the first and probably the most common use of the word heaven is simply the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament his abode. Uh, it, it's all that's up there, sun, moon, stars, the whole universe. Uh, that's heaven in a common usage of the word as we use it and also as scripture uses it. So that, that's one way in which the word heaven is used. Sometimes heaven is used even to describe our state of grace. After we are believers, uh, it can be said we are citizens of heaven. And uh, that, that's a very important doctrinal truth. Um, uh, Paul does a great deal of emphasis about that in, in a number of his letters. Uh, think of Philippians particularly where he describes us as being citizens of heaven. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes heaven is, is used to describe our state of grace, that is, our, um, our eternal life that we've already received and enjoyed as God's people here on earth. But probably the more common usage of heaven as far as our eternal abode is two different things, and, and I want to keep a distinction there. The one is it's used to describe where the believer goes at time of death. And Jesus, you remember, said to the, uh, to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, with Christ in paradise. Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22, as you read through those, and also earlier in Revelation uh, chapter 6, I believe it is, describe the way in which believers are around the throne of God, aware of some of the things that are going on here in the earth. So this is not the eternal state. It's, it's the place where believers go when they die and await the resurrection and the final judgment. Our Shorter Catechism number 37 addresses this when it says, The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory, and their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their graves until the resurrection. So the soul and the body are separate at that point, but the souls of believers are present with Jesus, as he said to that thief on the cross, and as Revelation, I believe, is chapter described particularly. 
But then there is that final estate that we call the heaven of glory. Uh, it's the final place of the redeemed. Uh, following the judgment, those who are wicked and have rejected God are sent to eternal punishment. And the believers are blessed with eternal life in what we know as heaven. But there are some other terms that use to describe that as well. Uh, in Revelation chapter 22, particularly, it talks about the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, Second Peter uh, also describes that. Uh, it's called the holy city. It's called, called God's dwelling place. It's called the new Jerusalem. And uh, Jesus, in Matthew 19, described it in this way. He said, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, there may be some other descriptions of heaven that I haven't touched on there, but those, those are some of the main ones that are words that are used to refer to heaven in one way. But let's move on to think a little bit more about how heaven in the eternal state that we're talking about uh, is described. Um, first, I think we need to, to establish without any equivocation that, you know, there are many people that say, oh, heaven, that, that's just a, a state of an idea, that a nice idea but it's not really a real place. And I think it's safe to say that there are so many references throughout Scripture which describe heaven in a, uh, in a way that it could not be anything but a place. It's a place where Jesus, in his resurrect resurrected body, is now in the one heaven and will be eternally in the final state. Uh, it's it's the, the place of God's home, if you will. It's the place that in John 14 we read about that Jesus is going to prepare. It's a place, and we need to bear that in mind. Now, with regard to the first description of heaven, that temporary place where the souls of believers are now, which we call paradise really more than heaven, I have no preparation or ability to describe where that is exactly. I don't believe it's the same place that our, but it is a place where Jesus in his resurrected body is now residing and it's where the souls of believers go to reside with him until he's in his second coming and the resurrection takes place. So when we consider that final state, that place where our resurrected bodies and souls together will be spending eternity with God, I think we have a number of more specific inferences and descriptions concerning that. Uh, particularly in Second Peter, the third chapter, uh, verses 6 through 13, Peter uh, seems to indicate that there's going to be a destruction of this present earth and heavens uh, of, the, of the universe as well, and that, that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Now, that's caused theologians to 
wrestle and disagree on, surprisingly. Um, there are many that believe that, that the whole universe as we know it now will actually be destroyed and then God will create a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, that's particularly supported by those of, uh, of Lutheran theology and that sort of thing. Not entirely, but by them a good deal. More in the Reformed camp is the view that heaven and earth as we know it now will not be utterly destroyed. That would seem to be saying that, that Satan won, <laughs> that, this, this, that God couldn't do it. And um, there are a number of references that seem to indicate not that this will be destroyed, but rather that it will be, shall we say, recreated, or I think perhaps better, restored to its original holiness. And I think that's a, a more biblical view on this. In Revelation, or I'm sorry, in, in Romans, we read how Paul describes this, this whole creation groaning until it's renewed. And uh, there are other references that seem to move in that direction as well. And so um, uh, that, that will be the premise that I'm uh, moving from as we think about the things. But I want us to, to remember again that, that point that Jesus makes in John 14. He's going to prepare a place for us and is going to return and take us to be with him in that place. And this, I think, sets before us the truth that this prepared place is for a prepared people. It's not just for anyone. It's for those who have been prepared. Listen again to Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 19 and verses 28 and 29. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. I was reading that particularly for the last part of that. Is it really a place? Yes. It's a place. The disciples have just asked Jesus these people are, are giving up everything. You've blessed them. What about us? We're giving up everything. And Jesus is saying, yes, but you're going to eat more than you're giving up. Multitude of extent beyond that. And so, again, uh, don't forget that phrase that we all already looked at when Thomas asked, how do we know the way? Jesus is the way. Only those who are prepared will inherit this place that we're. So, with that foundation and that groundwork, I want us to spend a few moments in um, in thinking about some of the blessings that are awaiting us in heaven. In other words, what is what is heaven going to be like? Uh, what what can we find about that? And uh, Dr. Voss, in his article in Blue Banner Faith and Life. 
uh, deals with this fairly extensively. Uh, I ran across another author. He was a, a pastor in England some years ago, uh, John Blanchard, his name, and he has an excellent article on this, and I'm, I'm relying pretty heavily on him as I share some of the things that he uh, lays out as to some of the blessings that we have in heaven and some of the things that we can be looking for in there. Uh, the first thing that um, I want to think about for just a moment or two is heaven is a, a place of perfect fulfillment of everything that as believers we should desire, want and desire. It, it's it's a, a place of perfect fulfillment. And, and this is in contrast. Listen to what Paul describes as our present creation. Romans 8 and verse 20, Paul says that our present creation is subjected to perfect satisfaction, perfect fulfillment of everything that we could imagine. Um, Dr. A. A. Hodge, a professor at Westminster many years ago, uh, describes it in this way. He says, this glorious fulfillment has been well expressed in this way. Heaven as the eternal home of the divine man and all the redeemed members of the human race must necessarily be thoroughly human in its structure, conditions, and activities. Its joys and its occupations must all be rational, moral, emotional, voluntary, and active. There must be the exercise of all facilities, or faculties, I'm sorry, the gratification of our desires, the fulfillment of all latent capacities, the realization of all ideals, the reason, the intellect, and the intellectual curiosity, the imagination, the aesthetic instincts, the holy affections, the social affinities, the inexhaustible resources of strength and power native to the human soul must all find in heaven exercise. And it's a, an amazing description of we're not just sitting around playing harps. We're not just sitting around wondering what to do. Uh, another mm -hmm. author that I was reading uh, describes the idea that uh, it, it would be like being in the Garden of Eden again and receiving God's command to, we haven't begun to scratch the surface of things, even in our sinful condition. What will it be like as redeemed souls exploring the universe? I think that's that's a part of what's there. It, it's a, an amazing picture of the uh, of the extent of our satisfaction in that way. Second thing that we might think about that uh, will be a description of how things are in heaven. There will be unending enjoyment of eternal life lived in perfect union of a spiritual body and a purified soul. Now we don't know what our heavenly bodies are going to be like exactly. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives some description uh, talks about the resurrection, talks about our being a physical body, and then he, he says, but 
but we're raised a spiritual body. What does that mean? I don't think it means that there's no physicality to it because there's so much physicality described in other places with regard to our presence and our being in the place with Jesus and with God the Father. Jesus had a physical body, even though it was a spiritual body, and his resurrected body, I think, is is to some degree at least a, a picture of what we might expect our resurrected bodies to be like, at least, to some degree, in some way. And more a little bit about that a little bit later. So uh, <clears throat> this, this place is a place of enjoyment of the spiritual body, the union of the spiritual body and the purified soul. No sin anymore. anymore. David talks about these things in Psalm 16. He says, Thou will make known to me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now he's, he's talking there, I think, in Psalm 16 about present experience as a as a saint, but I think he's also referring unknowingly to himself probably at that point about the reality of our uh, Jesus when he tells the parable about the talents. The faithful stewards are said, enter into the joy of your And that's a, a picture of heaven again. Revelation 21 and verse 4, which was a part of our reading earlier this morning, there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And all of the other things that go along. I think uh, Thomas Brooks was not in play. This quote from, from Thomas Brooks. If all the earth were paper and all the plants of the earth were pens and all the sea were ink, and if every man, woman, and child had the pen of a ready writer, yet were they not able to express the thousandth part. It's not hyperbole. Unending enjoyment and joy because of a, of a spiritual body and a purified soul. The third thing let's think about for a few moments. There's going to be perfect communion among people. No more Calvinists and Arminians. No more, you know, make the list, whatever kind of list you want on that. That's not going to happen in heaven. There's going to be perfect communion among the redeemed souls. The saints are described as in a city. A city is not for individual. The scripture indicates that that group of people Jesus promised in Matthew 8, many shall come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom. And John saw a great multitude which no one could number from every nation, tribe, and people standing before the throne. So it's, it's a community of believers, redeemed souls, resurrected spiritual well there's also rest in heaven a lot of people are looking forward to that rest now that doesn't mean inactivity 
There's a difference between rest and inactivity. I'm firmly convinced that uh, when we use the, the term work, we usually mean labor. And in reality, in Genesis, the first three chapters, what was work, which is normal, good activity, became labor, which is painful and wearying and all of the other things associated with it. And that's going to go away in heaven, according to the scripture. It's, it's a, a place of rest and yet unending and joyful. There are a number of scriptures that refer to this, certainly. Um, there will be rest, certainly. Um, in Revelation 14, uh, the scripture describes God's people as resting from their labor. And I think we need to, to make a good understanding of the distinction between labor and its association with sin good activity in heaven. There's undoubtedly going to be service there. Writing uh, of those who had washed their robes and made them white in the blood of Lamb, John says that they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night. And later he makes clear that the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his bondservants shall serve him. So we'll be serving the Lord in whatever activity that means. don't know all of that. Uh, I read a, a, another sermon that I'm not including in, in my thinking here particularly, but uh, it, it says, uh, why will the wicked not go to heaven? And one of the things that it was pointing out was they didn't enjoy themselves. There's nothing there that they want to do. They don't enjoy singing praises like we are to him. They don't enjoy fellowshipping with God. We do it by reading the scripture and, and fellowship saints. They, they wouldn't enjoy any of that. There's, there's no point or purpose in the wicked wanting to go to heaven. And they obviously don't. I'll never forget when I was uh, a teenager, I was a Western movie, probably a really, And uh, somewhere in that movie, there was a preacher doing what we normally call a fire and brimstone type sermon. And uh, I didn't know this kid, but a, another young person, uh, probably from my same school, said, oh, that's where I'm going. And he, he was talking about going to hell. And he was making light of it. And he had no desire to go to hell. No, who it was, I, I wouldn't recognize him. I saw him again, but I, I've never forgotten him. The heaven that we're talking about, the wicked will be there. But best of all, and this is not the, the end of the, of the list of things that we can consider about what heaven is like and what we'll be doing in heaven. Best of all, we as believers, the souls of saints in their united spiritual body will be at home with the Lord. And that, that's the real promise. We'll be at home with Jesus said in John 14, I will come and, and but he goes on to say in others' home. And um, that, that's a, a wonderful blessing. Um, 
when we talk about going to heaven, we're talking about going to a place. We're talking about going not to what we in our common hearsay, not going to a house, a home that has our best friend in residence there, the Lord, a home that is God the Father's home as well. Now, God is a spirit. I can't quite understand how all of that's going to, to work out and how we'll be able to uh, to have a knowledge that we're in the presence of God in that way. Uh, but um, that's what this and uh, In John 14, 2, Jesus promised that in my Father's house or home are many rooms. And then later in John 14, verse 23, Jesus said this, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The word home, in it, it's God's abode. It's God's presence in that. So simply in conclusion this morning, I'm going to read a, a fairly long paragraph by Blanchard, uh, English pastor that I, I, he puts it this way, the believer in heaven will be in a state of spiritual perfection. John says of the glorified Christ, he is pure. In him, there is no sin. He is righteous. That's First John chapter 1, if you want to. In that passage, John says that the glorified Christ is pure. In him there is no sin. He is righteous. But in that same passage, he says, we shall be, what a, an amazing promise. Picking up from Blanche again. We shall be as pure then as Christ is now. As sinless then as he is now. As righteous then as he is now. In moral terms, everything that can be said about Christ now will be true of us then. Nothing should amaze us more than the prospect of this complete divorce. Let me read just a, a couple of those verses from first verses 1 and 2. First uh, John 3, verses 1 and 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as out there. Um, <clears throat> I ran across this little poem, actually it's part of a hymn uh, by a, a poet, Anne Ross Cousin. She puts it this way, the bride's eyes, the bride eyes, not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace, not at the crown he gives, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory. That's, that's the picture that describes what I hope all of us 
certainty. We are the bride of Christ, you know. And um, I had that experience at a wedding one time. Genealogy on that of a young lady that was getting married. And we had driven quite a few miles, hadn't seen her for a long time, to be at her wedding. And I was sitting on the road. And she's coming down the aisle. Now, she'll see that I'm here. She had no interest in the fact that I was sitting right there and she hadn't seen me for months or not. Her eyes were on the groom in prayer. Lord God, as we gather for worship this morning, we thank you once again that you speak to us through your word, that you give us encouragement and counsel, that you guide us and direct us by the read it and study it together. Father, we thank you that um, you've promised that you are preparing a place, that you're doing that even now still for us. And that you will come again and receive us to yourself. That where you are, we can be also. And so, Lord, we we look forward with anticipation and joy to the experience that we we will be like you, and that we will spend eternity with you and with those other saints that are glorified. We give you praise and thanksgiving in all of these things through Christ.